Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 229 of uh, the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is not only the Matt runs out of breath during the opening of the show episode, but it is also the complete Graph K13 episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out, in math, you can actually create certain sectored and vectored drawings called complete graphs. And there is one called K13, which has exactly 229 crossings in its straight-line drawing with the fewest possible crossings. And with that wonderful little weird mathematical factoid knowledge, I, of course, am the breathless aforementioned Matt. And, of course, coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. So when you were taking math in school, would you ever say Matt-a-matical? You get it? Oh, God, no. No? No, I would not, no. And the dad jokes are strong with this one. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I maybe it's just because I didn't need any additional help in the nerddom department. Really? You know, so are you yeah. super nerdy? Are you still super nerdy at school? <sighs> well, I, I just, it is the one curse that has followed me is the teacher's pet. Um, and, and it's not because I go out of my way. Uh, oh, do you remember the TV show? Do you remember the cartoon Recess? The Disney cartoon Recess? Yes. For a second, I thought you were going to say, you remember that Disney cartoon called Teacher's Pet about with Nathan <laughs> Lane as the talking dog? Um, but yeah, I remember Recess. Okay. Uh, and and Miss Finster's little, uh, the, the dude with the with the uh, pad and pen who would go around marking off TJ and their friends and go ratting on them to Miss Finster. I can't remember. Not that kind of a teacher's pet. Um, but just... I was genuinely interested in the class. Like, and so that happens now. Even now, I, I, you know, I engage with the professor and ask questions, start discussions and things of that nature. And it's not because I'm trying to, you know, brown nose or do anything else. It's because I'm just genuinely interested in the content. And consequently, there's been a few times where people look at me and go, God damn it, not again. Um, although on the flip side, there are also times when I would miss a class for a reason and come back and people are like, you can never miss class. And I'm like, why? And uh, because you're the only person who keeps the teacher distracted. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, Well, I guess if you get a little brown on that nose, that's kind of a perk. I suppose. I will say that. Teacher brown? (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess it does, in a certain way, it does pay off because I've, you know, like anytime I ever have an issue, or if I've had to miss class or something like that, I never, um, I never get docked points for absences. Um, you know, I've had teachers who are like, ah, no, I don't like this project that you did, or you know, I don't like this paper as much. Tell you what, just go ahead and you know fix this stuff and get it back to me. And they wouldn't do it for other students. I mean, so it does pay to be a good student because I, you know, professors you know take care of the better students i think so do you sit front row center um no sometimes i sit in the front just depends on the class and how it's set up and what's going on um but i i will occasionally sit in the front row but never front and center oh no i'm not no i'm good thanks well okay so you you seem like a generally 
nice, easygoing, not too dorky teacher's pet. You see, if I were the teacher's pet and I knew I had nothing to lose because I'd be walking out of this class with a 4.0 GPA, which is a joke because that would never happen with me in, in, a, in a math class. I would have sat down, if my name was Matt, I would sit down and somebody's like, welcome to mathematics. Or maybe the teacher was like, check your schedules. This is Miss So-and-So's class for mathematics. I'd raise my hand. No, I, I would raise a finger up and go, no, ma'am. No, no, Miss Bernstein. I believe it is mathematics. And then look around, give everybody in the classroom like a cheeky look, you know, scrunch up the nose and the face and giggle while 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 sitting down you people can do that uh because they absolutely have nothing to lose all the very successful brown nosers i like how you were oddly specific in changing the status of your raised uh, appendage from hand to finger i just get (laughs) i could actually see that going down uh in a movie or a tv show so I guess it would mean a lot more if, you know, first you raise up the hand and it's like, ooh, this could go either way. Either A, I mean, A finger is going to come up. I mean, nobody, it's not black power, you know, you're not going to just hold up a fist in class, especially when you're the nerdy guy in the front. A finger's going to come up. Either that is the day that you're going to crack and possibly shoot everybody after flicking them off, or you're going to raise up that finger and point something out. And that's what I would have done. The latter, not the former. But push me hard enough, Matthew, and I'll shake my fist at you. (laughs) Disagree with your statement, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Mathematics. So, speaking of odd puns and rich, um, have you uh, been watching Mystery Science Theater 3000? The reboot? I have been, yeah. I'm on uh, the 6th or 7th. Honestly, I burnt myself out. I was so eager to watch the new ones that I went back and watched all the 13 episodes pretty much back-to-back that Netflix re-released uh, a couple months ago. A couple months ago? Well, like a month or so ago. They, they really, Netflix, uh, instant, they instantly released like a volume. Of... Well, no, I know that, but I thought it was like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, the new ones. I was talking about I went back to rewatch the old ones that they put on Netflix in preparation Wait, Netflix for the new ones. put the whole goddamn series on no the first volume some of the older episodes oh see i guess i missed that because they have an mst3k channel on youtube where uh legal it's a legal channel where they uploaded like the whole series yeah it's a shout factory since i think shout factory owns a lot of the distribution rights i mean are are you watching getting my mst3k fix yes yes i am on episode three of the new ones and um i i watched the first episode and I will say it took a good 20 minutes, really and truly a good 20 minutes to get to kind of get into it. Um, but once that vibe started, you know, getting out, I was like, OK, I'm in. I'm in. I started chuckling a little more, actually laughing. And by the time they actually got to the kaiju rap, um, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> you know how, what? I mean. What a perfect spiritual successor. And, I mean, it really does make sense when you think, you know, Joel is the one directing most of the episodes and stuff. And, of course, um, so and he was really influential on it. And you have a lot of people who truly love MST3K putting it on. And so then I went and started reading some reviews. And, you know, and, and it's getting, you know, m- mediocre to fair reviews. Not really a whole lot of pop. And I'm like, and they re- rated, like, 
the first episode is one of the worst episodes. Um, and then, you know, in terms of tiering it, I mean, there were really good episodes, pretty good episodes, not so great episodes, and then bad episodes. Yeah. And they're rating the first, and I'm like, well, I laughed at the first one, so geez, they can only get better from here. And then when I watched the Cry Wilderness episode, I mean, they had me at, li- they literally had me at the title screen. When the title screen says Cry Wilderness, and they all three of them go, well, if you insist, Wilderness! And I just, I mean, <laughs> I was like, this is gonna be good. So, I am like, totally down right now. Yeah, I'm about 35 minutes, I think, into the third episode right now. Yeah, the so. first, I actually didn't finish the first episode, because I I wasn't impressed. I didn't find the vibe, and I think a day or two later, I decided the Saturday they all came out. I watched Cry Wilderness and laughed my ass off. And two, three, and four, those three episodes back to back are really, really good. My my favorite part of Cry Wilderness, uh, in terms of the actual setup, uh, are the fact that they <laughs> all all the damn animals are on leashes, <laughs> and. You- you can see the leashes. You can see the leashes. And yet these people are walking around like acting like they're not on leashes. And I'm like, you can see them though. I <laughs> uh, just, yeah, it's, uh. And there's always one animal. Like they're not in pairs, which is kind of funny. Oh, and then like the mountain lion that's, that's when they're tr- when it, trying to get Pete or whatever the hell his name is, the boy, uh, he gets into the trap. And he's like dangling in the trap. Oh yeah, yeah. And you can totally tell that this poor puma has been, um, ha- has been like spayed or whatever, uh, because you can see it's ha- by its haunches. You can see the skin flaps down there and stuff <laughs> from where they. I'm like, wow. Well, I guess this isn't. You know, this this is a totally wild animal. And yeah, I was. I guess when you're in a world where Bigfoot is warning a small child that his father might be in danger. <laughs> Anything goes. It's, it's you know, no holds bar. I'm sure everybody who has never seen or who has yet to watch the new MST3K are probably very confused. Oh, yeah, especially especially if just randomly we start going, bang! And... <laughs> <Yeah>. <sighs> okay, well, so, um, yeah, so what have you been up to, dude? We, now that we've randomly been talking about... Oh. Mr. Science Theater 3000 for a while. Yeah, you know, not not much. We are reviewing Free Fire and Lost City of Z this weekend. Or not this weekend. Today. We're reviewing it today. So you and I both. 24th of April. The 24th of April. A Monday. So I went and saw the Lost City of Z a Wednesday. Not when. God damn, what am I saying? Saturday. Saturday I went to go see Lost City of Z. So I spent all day writing and eight hours straight. So I really wanted to go out and see a movie. And so the significant other was out having dinner with friends. So it was just... Me, by myself, by my lonesome that night. So uh, I thought, okay, well, it's playing at the Landmark. It's very limited showings around L.A., surprisingly. It's playing at the Landmark, 8.40 p.m. It's in their smaller theater where you sit on couches. So it's very limited seating. And, you know, it's like, it's only going to be me. Well, the only single seats were where I did not want to sit. So I thought, there's a two-person couch. I'm going to reserve one seat on that couch. So... I get there literally five minutes before the movie. I have my beer in hand. You know, it's a $15 ticket. It's not, like, super expensive, but, you know, it's a $15 ticket. You want to enjoy it. Second row, I sit down in my seat. I get stopped by the uh, ticket lady, and she's like, Excuse me, sir, this couple here, they just bought their tickets, and they would like to sit together. Unfortunately, all the couple seats were taken. Would you mind switching with one of them so they can sit together? 
And of course, I'm like, sure, why not? Fine. Not a problem at all. Let the couple sit down. And then I go to where, you know, where one of them was supposed to sit. I go to my new seat. And it's right next. It's a three-person couch. I'd be sharing it with this elderly couple. The old curmudgeon of a man looked like he was very confused with the whole situation. So I didn't want to confuse him more by sitting down next to him on a couch where I'm, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's a couch you want to slouch in. If you were there with a significant other and you want to like wrap that arm around and do some like thrust slouching, it's a good couch to do that with. I would feel awkward sharing this couch with my own father. So, you know, let alone sharing it with this old curmudgeon of a of a husband and wife, you know, would be that much more. Regardless, I end up leaving and going to the 1015 showing. That is literally the most exciting thing that I encountered this past weekend. Ho- hopefully you can top that somehow. Nope. Not this week. Wow, wow, I... wow. <laughs> <laughs> nope, just, just went up to Market Street, went in there and watched the movie with like, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 other people. I don't know. That's good. It was was a movie. Yeah. Um, It was a movie that played. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say it was like an experience or anything, but... uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. But we'll get to that later. Yeah. Should be a good, good topic. But not as good as our upcoming interruption to our regularly scheduled uh, Ultimate Letdown. How about that, huh? Ooh, yeah. This will be good, too. Or that will be good. Well, this, as in what you were mentioning... Will be good. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Marilyn Gigliotti at that clerk's girl, right? And, and uh, I, I follow her on Twitter, and she does not follow me or know me from Adam, but she does know some of our podcasting friends, mainly Raphael and that fracking cat from We Are Not Here to Please You. Shout out, um, as Johnny would say, another shout out. Uh, as he might say. So she had actually put a thing up there from Peter Coyote that was an open letter to lead actors, basically about uh, scale pay and stuff like that. So we'll, we'll actually, that'll be fun. We could talk about. And and she did. I replied to it, and, and she liked my reply. So, you know, I can say I'm that kind of guy. You know, well, do you know any famous people? Well, just so happens that uh, Marilyn Gigliotti liked a tweet that I put out there so anyway that would have taken on a totally different meaning if you were to say that to somebody 15 12 years ago (laughs) she liked my tweet i guess we should probably check the old mail sack what do you say sir check that mail sack check it good check that mail sack like you should good i'll I'll get it right (laughs) you know you know what we need we just need a quick little sound effect of like a dozen kids going, yay! <laughs> when, you finish, when you finish singing that, and I'm telling you, it's perfect. That's that's our that's our little uh, shtick. Okay, so well, we don't have any emails to read this week, but as always, we do encourage you to send us an email to the show at slscast.com and of course if you would like to follow us on twitter we would encourage you to do that as well by following us at the slscast but what do we have in the mail sack well it turns out we've got 36 fucking followers thank you so very much all of you other wonderful people for following us on twitter again if you would like to follow us on twitter please do so by following us at the slscast and now now I think, God damn it, we can finally get into the fucking news. What do you think, sir? Let's news it. 
Then here we go, folks. It's time for the news. That is exactly correct. All right. So first up from me, by way of Ryan Leston on, uh, over at uk.movies.yahoo.com. Well, my worst fears have been confirmed, folks. Turns out that Fast 10 will be the last Fast and Furious movie. <sighs> yes. Ryan writes... It's official. Fast 10 will be the last Fast and Furious. During an interview with Collider, Fast and Furious producer Neil Moritz confirmed that the franchise will end with Fast and Furious 10, and they already have an ending in mind. I'm guessing the ending is, is the new Brian also crashes his car on the side of the road. Too soon? Quote, yeah, the plan is to make two more movies, end quote. He said, uh, more quotes from him. He says also, quote, we have kind of the ending point of the franchise, but we don't know the in-betweens yet. That's just all of us kind of putting our heads together and coming together with something that we think is very special. And all quotes there. And, um, yeah, so basically it's just a matter of wait and see. We don't really know what's happening. But then, of course, if you know how fast eight ended, um, which by the way, uh, I, I was listening to Johnny White Trash yesterday, and the poor bastard somehow got the impression that Dom dies saving his son. Um, that spoiler that you think you read is not a spoiler. It's a fake spoiler. So rest easy, son. Rest easy. And, um, yeah. And then real quick here, I'm just going to jump into, um, you know, other people who are not going to be in movies or won't be in movies or will be in movies from IGN.com by way of Alex Osborne. Jeremy Renner, not in Mission Impossible 6, is in Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's right. Uh, Mission Impossible 6 reportedly won't feature the return of Jerry Renner's William Brandt. According to Showbiz 411, the actor is instead busy with two upcoming MCU movies. In addition to Marvel's The Avengers Infinity War, Renner will reportedly also make an appearance as Hawkeye in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Potentially filling the void left by Renner's absence from MI6 is Superman actor Henry Cavill, whose involvement in the project was announced by director Christopher McQuarrie. McQuarrie shed light on the film, saying it will feature a few familiar faces and provide a different look at Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt when it opens in theaters on July 27th, 2018. So... Uh, and then let's, uh, there's just a little bit more to that article. I encourage you to read it though. Questions, comments, concerns, Tim, thoughts on Fast 10, on the fact that it looks like we're gonna be staring two more Fast and Furious movies in the face. And the fact that Jeremy Renner has chosen Hawkeye over Mission Possible. Yeah. Did he actually choose one over the other, or was it because he was contractually obligated to do Avengers or well, I would Marvel think, stuff? I would think that unless he has, like, 
some ridiculous storyline that's involved in either Infinity Wars and or Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, I don't see how he couldn't have gotten away to do the other movie. I, I, um, I mean, yes, Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of a big thing, but at the same time, it's not literally all-encompassing. I mean, you do go do other things, so... Um, and I like Hawkeye. I think he's been a great character, but he he also hasn't been doing a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, they're trying to build him up to kill him off, because you know they're hey. they're not going to kill off Tony. They're going to kill off uh, kill off Hawkeye or Captain well, sure, America. Sure, sure, but it's going to be too late now because he already missed out on playing William Brandt again. So, yeah, that's uh, true. You know. I don't. Know, I would rather <laughs> see him in Mission Impossible. I like. I thought he was a nice contrast to Ethan Hunt. Hopefully Henry Cavill will pick that dynamic up, because uh, I like Henry Cavill a lot outside of Superman. But are you telling me that Johnny Whitrash has yet to watch Fast and Furious 8 because he thinks Dom dies? No, no, not not because of that. Just oh, okay. that he hadn't he hadn't gotten around to seeing it yet, and then he read some clickbaity article on like '90s music or whatever, and so he clicked one. It's like, oh, this movie soundtrack, da da da, and then oh, this da da da, and then all of a sudden, the third one was literally <laughs> Dom dies trying to save his son in Fast and Furious or F- Fate of the Furious, and so he was like, you know, dumbfounded that he got tricked into this uh, spoiler, <laughs> and I haven't had a chance to reach out to him personally yet, so I don't even know if he's gone and seen the movie since. But just as of oh, I hope last so. week when he released that show. I hope he, he was like show. mentally preparing for it like all day. And then he realized he was fooled. So my first piece of news from the HollywoodReporter.com. Did you see the trailer for this movie called The Promise? It stars Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale. No, but you know me. I'm I'm all about showing up 15 to 20 minutes after the movie starts now. So Right, right. Well, the first time I actually really heard anything about this movie is when I saw it at the movie theater, the trailer for it at the movie theater here just three weeks ago, and uh, I had no idea it was already out, or that it was going to be out so soon. But uh, according to thehollyreporter.com, box office, The Promise Could Lose, $80 million serving a higher purpose. This here is written by Pamela McClintock, and it says this, the Armenian genocide drama starring Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac opened to just $4.1 million over the weekend in North America. The late Kirk Kirkorian's parting gift to Hollywood was The Promise, a big-budget epic about the Armenian genocide. Starring Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac, the movie opened to a mere $4.1 million at the North American box office over the weekend. At that rate, the film stands to lose $80 million or more unless it overperforms overseas and in ancillary markets, according to box office reports. The promise cost $90 million to $100 million to make before marketing costs and a distribution fee paid to Open Road Films in North America... Kerkorian, who died in 2015 and was of Armenian descent, fully financed the movie via Survival Pictures, which was created to make the movie and to educate the public about genocide in the 20th and 21st centuries. The film's producers say that the film is a victory, its box office notwithstanding, since the intent was never to make a profit, 
Instead, the promise was intended to shine a light on the massacre of 1.5 million Armenians in the waning days of the Ottoman Empire, and any proceeds from the film will be donated to charity, including to the new The Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA School of Law, which was unveiled last week with a $20 million gift. The release of the film was timed to the date the genocide began, April 24, 1915. That was the day when Turkey's Ottoman Empire began rounding up, arresting, and deporting Armenian leaders and intellectuals. And the article goes on from there a little bit more. Uh, There are some quotes here about how the movie is a living museum and how important it is, especially now. Shit, man, it's been almost 100 years since the Armenian genocide, and Turkey still has yet to acknowledge that it was, in fact, a genocide, despite 1.5 million Armenians were massacred. And I'm I'm just kind of surprised to see a, a movie is just now being made about the genocide specifically. Do you think it would be worth kind of checking out? Sounds kind of interesting. With as much as we see about, with with things like the Holocaust and other disasters and stuff like that, which, again, none of these things are good, and we should have some level of awareness of all of them perpetually, because much um, much like the Jewish mantra of never again, right? We We need to keep these things always relatively fresh so that they never fall away and we are on the lookout for those kinds of things so but yeah i mean i think that um things that spotlight you know the mass extermination of any people um should be good i i think that there's probably um i i think it's precisely because of the lack of interest um historically that we that that this movie is not doing as well there's just it's just not on anybody's uh plate and i think that this is a good way to get it in so i mean i can totally understand where they're coming from but i think that despite the fact that it's probably a good movie and sure i mean comes out on vod or whatever we can certainly visit you know visit it down the road um but i would still venture to say that the studios knew this going in and it sounds like they just flat out overspent. And I mean, if you wanna, if, if you wanna justify it by, you know, saying how important it is and everything, that, that's fine. But, and if it brings additional awareness and helps make the movie a little bit more money, then cool. And that's pretty much why the movie was made, since it was completely self-financed by, uh, by this guy. I mean, the company that made the movie was virtually his company that he started. Oh yeah, Survival Pictures. Yeah, that was the name of the company that he made uh, to finance the movie. But it was distributed by Open Road Films in North America, which uh, they had to pay a fee for them to distribute the film. You know, they were going to distribute it at a pretty low cost. So it's interesting. I mean, I guess they weren't going yeah, in as blind. And, I, and again, I don't want to sound you know like Debbie Downer, and I definitely don't want to sound um, flippant about it. I just I think that this is the, this is a kind of piece that is meant to, um, uh, to 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 kind of cushion the blow, as it were, um, of how poorly the movie is going to do. And I don't think, and I, and I think it's informational just to say, look, the movie. 
um, just has no awareness and has no traction. That's why it's not making any money. And that, and, and that is more than likely totally what's going on. But at the same time, it does look bad when you have big names like this. And then the movie only makes, you know, $10 million worldwide on a $90 million budget. So, um, so that's fine. You know, that's fine. I guess we'll have to see for ourselves at some point more than likely. Sounds good. And then I'm just going to jump over here to slashfilm.com. Netflix open to simultaneous theatrical releases for its original films. This here is written by, uh, well, it's posted on Monday, but written by Ben Pearson. But say Monday, what a very interesting first name. Uh, and it says this, Amazon made a big splash at this year's Academy Awards with Manchester by the Sea winning Oscars for Best Actor and Best Original Screenplay. Pundits cited Amazon's theatrical model as having a big impact on the film's wins, while another major streaming site, Netflix, has struggled to achieve similar awards outside of the documentary categories, perhaps due to its more limited theatrical distribution. But Netflix's new quarterly earnings report implies that changes could be brewing, and audiences may have the chance to see Netflix original movies on the big screen as well as at home. In the past, Netflix has tested the waters with theatrical distribution with movies like Beasts of No Nation, but only in limited release. In the nature of that release, it was available to stream at home and see in theaters at the same time, meant traditional theaters weren't thrilled to play the movie in their multiplexes. Those old-school companies tend to prefer exclusive distribution windows, and Netflix's simultaneous release gambit throws that off. Amazon, on the other hand, played along and put Manchester by the Sea exclusively in theaters for a while before eventually making it available for streaming on its video platform. In addition to awards attention, this resulted in a $47 million box office haul, a strong showing for an R-rated drama. In the present, the earnings report mentions the company has hired producer Scott Stuber, producer of Ted and Patriot's Day, to head up a new initiative for its original films, along with clearly laying out expectations for him. The report drops an interesting nugget of information about what Netflix's possible future may hold. We recently hired Scott Stuber to lead our original films initiative. Our goal remains the same, to offer a variety of new movies that will attract and delight members at better economics relative to licensing movies under traditional windowing. Some of our early movies have been successful by this measure, such as the Sandler movies in Siege of Jetoville. Others, such as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, have not. Scott's mandate is to increase both the portfolio and the percentage of films that delight many of our members relative to the film's cost. Since our members are funding these films, they should be the first to see them, but we are also open to supporting the large theater chains, such as AMC and Regal in the U.S., if they want to offer our films, such as our upcoming Will Smith film, Bright, in theaters simultaneous to Netflix, let customers choose. End all quotes there. Uh, Matt, what do you think about this? I, I think Amazon's platform here is, 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 I mean, there's a reason why they're doing so much better in the awards circuit than Netflix. I couldn't imagine not watching Manchester by the Sea for the first time at the movie theater. Other people would argue that they would have the same experience watching it at home. 
But there was something so much more gratifying and exciting seeing that movie at a theater with great sound, a good screen, and surrounded by other people experiencing this movie. What, what does Netflix have to lose to come out with a movie, release it to theaters for maybe one month, maybe two months, or maybe just one month? How about one month at a movie theater, then after that one month, put it out on Netflix. But for one month, it'll solely be shown at a movie theater. I think that would make sense, and I really don't think Netflix will lose anything, because if they make a good movie, which Netflix really, they really don't make great original movies. I mean, the only one I can think of at the top of my head is Beasts of No Nation, and maybe one or two others, but more than not, they're significantly flawed. If they're smart, one month in a movie theater, if the movie is as good, the same people who have Netflix accounts will go back and rewatch the film at home. Well, and they are. Yeah. They are. They're standing by Netflix. They're not standing by the movie theaters. And I think that's where, I think that's where the disconnect is happening here. Um, I agree that, um, Netflix, uh, outside of their documentaries, um, that generally leaves more to be desired, um, from their films. Now, their TV slate, holy shit. I mean, they've got winner after winner after winner there. So, I mean, again, I can see why, you know, Amazon does some really cool things and, and, you know, I, I can see where people would side with that. But Netflix, um, this move by Netflix is more to just give distributors, theater distributors a, a bone. I mean, um, it's to, and it will, however, also prove, um, it'll put, it'll literally put people's money, people like you, it'll put your money, force you to put your money where your mouth is. Okay. Um, in that, if you know that you really feel strongly about a movie being a true theater experience, above and beyond it being a Netflix experience, then you should go to the theater and see that movie, even though you could just go and onto your couch and see that movie. You could go to the awkward couch with your dad, right? I, you know, um, but I, I don't think that that, I, I don't think that's wrong that Netflix wants to do, that the Netflix wants to have day and date release, um, so that you can choose. They are giving you the power to choose. And what they're going to do is show distributors the type of people who are willing to go to the theater despite it being available for free on a platform they already pay for. And what that does is they can get demographic information from that. They can start to learn who are the people they should make movies for? They also can get an, a feel for the budget range of these kinds of movies. And, you know, Journey of a Thousand Miles begins with a footstep. So it's, it's not that they aren't, that they're not willing to back their product. It's that their product is not the movie theater. Their product is Netflix. So I don't know. I, I, I like it. I think it's a, I, I think it's a bold move and we'll see if it pays off for them, Cotton. I don't, okay, I'll tell you right now, movie theaters will not show a movie if it's being simultaneously shown, you know, on, on a paid site, like, you know, like Netflix. And that was a big problem with Beasts of No Nation. I believe a movie theater, uh, in order for a movie to be recognized by the Academy Awards as being a, a nominee contender, 
it has to have a two-week run at a movie theater. I think it's about two weeks, maybe two, two and a half weeks or so. A lot of theaters won't do that. They know they're not going to make any money off of it. Beasts of No Nation didn't make any money. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's, you know, it's it's little to none. You know, I'm pretty sure The True. Promise did better, you know, the two weeks. No, I understand. I understand that, uh, Tim. But um, there are tons of movies out there now that don't make any money. Right. There, there are movies you can you can walk into virtually any movie theater in the United States at one o'clock on a Tuesday and take your pick of any seat that you want. So it's not a matter of I mean that that's on the theater. The theater's not making any money anyway. So it's you know. But not all those movies all... are not making money at any other time during the day. But the, okay, I guess a question I have for you then is: so you have a movie like. Based on what you said about The Lost City of Z or The Lost City of Zed, Mm -hmm. maybe you didn't enjoy it as much. But take a movie like that, you know, an adventure movie or or, or like how the or like how the trailer was like whenever I saw the trailer, I just thought it was like one of those old fashioned adventure uh, mystery thriller, you know, type of movies that's very uh, atmospheric and absorbing. Now, if you had a chance, a choice to go see that movie at a movie theater or go see or watch it at home on Netflix, what would you do? Uh, well, I actually... Okay, in my defense, I, I would have to say that I did not see the trailer. Oh, no, I, I, like a movie like that, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would honestly say that unless, unless I was truly and honestly stirred by the movie, couldn't care less. Right. I, I would I would be fine with waiting for the movie. I have to be it really and truly has to be and I and and hey, you we all know me. I'm not just a you know blockbuster kind of movie kind of guy. I'm not just a you know tent pole movie kind of guy. There are movies out there. If the movie doesn't grab me, if the trailer doesn't grab me, if the story itself doesn't grab me, then I don't then I don't care where 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 or how I see it. Um so I but but you know but that's but that's me. But I think but I think somebody like you, like me, like other people that are you know movie fans, movie buffs, will take sure. certain things into consider. Well, we'll you know we'll take things into consideration. But the average moviegoer, the, the casual moviegoer, if you know if they have kids, you know they would rather go watch it at home. Right. I guess what's not too clear about this article is that they don't mention if that what they say goes for every movie or if they're talking about like their Adam Sandler movies, their Sandy Wexlers or the Ridiculous Sixes, which I think you have a lot of people that are curious to see how those movies, you know, turn out. But nobody's mm. going to be willing to spend 10, 12, 15 bucks on a curiosity, you know, so I can see them having hesitation with stuff like that. But then, you know, Beasts of No Nation was a pretty big movie and... I, I I don't know. I, I'm I just saying think, way too okay, much. I for... guess I no, and that's okay, and that's okay. I I think though that there is, as with almost everything, there is a happy medium, and I would say that uh, I, I know I have seen movie theaters where um, theater, you know, it's a twelve theater. Uh, you know, it's a 12 screen theater. And so theater, theater two, uh, will have movie A playing at one, four, and, you know, at like 11, one, and four. And then it'll have movie B playing at, you know, seven and 10. So, you know, there, there are ways to make this work so that a theater, uh, will have minimal risk 
in showing it. Um, I, I just, I just think that, um, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's, I think it is a, I think it is a, a, a good idea. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we will see the ongoing saga of Netflix in movie theaters. <laughs> Given how much time we've spent, <laughs> we should probably. I'm going to be done with my with my news. So if there's anything else you wanted to get to, oh no, no, I, I shan't. I I got Netflix on my mind, so I'm good. <laughs> Netflix on the I got brain. Got Netflix on my mind. He's got Netflix <laughs> on his mind. Uh, he is. He watches Netflix in the county. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for getting that. And for those who don't know what that is, go look up a song called Linemen of the County. All right. So then I guess let us move into our rather impromptu... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim discuss the Deadline article by way of Nikki Finke, Peter Coyote's open letter to lead actors, and now Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes, yes, discuss. We must discuss. All right, so um, as noted there, it's his uh, Deadline.com article by way of Nikki Finke. Um, or, or Fink, could just be Fink. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know if the E is silent on that one. So at any rate, um, says here that uh, Nikki says that the venerable actor has asked me to post this. And it is a letter... Um, it starts off that says, Dear colleagues, uh, and I'm just going to read again, this is the letter, quote, Dear colleagues, a small minority of actors are internationally known, iconic figures whom audiences flock to see in films and on television. Producers know these actors as the best means to ensure return on their investments and reward them appropriately for that security. In addition to talent, these actors have had that extra measure of good fortune and have been propelled to the very top of our profession. It is to these actors that this this letter is addressed because your good fortune may have insulated you from issues currently afflicting the majority of actors who support you as the friends, lovers, cops, lawyers, judges, villains, and sidekicks in films, and who are also hardworking, talented, and skilled professionals. I'm going to end the quote there for the letter. Um, I, I, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, 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 Fairly lengthy, but definitely worth the read. Please, please, please head over to Deadline.com. And again, special thanks to At That Clerk's Girl, because without Miss uh, Gigliotti, I would not have been aware of this at all. Um, all right, so basically, um, Peter Coyote goes on to talk about how, um, despite the existence of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, since the 90s, uh, we, there's been a vast corporatization of the way films are made and it has led to um certain key people making ass loads of money and this is not a slam again but for, for example like um keanu reeves in the matrix right who um or rdj in iron man avengers and stuff right um getting you know a hun you know hundreds of millions of dollars over time 
uh, for these movies. And then you're left with people who are in the supporting roles or minor roles, and they're left getting basically little better than what's called scale. Um, and me, I've always heard of scale. I've heard scale talked about. They even mention it in Friends because Joey's willing to work for scale. <laughs> but what is scale? What what does scale mean? And so I looked up what scale means. Um, and the most recent uh, monetary information I have is from the 2012-2013 year. Uh, it may have increased uh, since then. But basically, the, and this comes from cron.com by, uh, by way of Lisa uh, Dorward. There are uh, what they call the union scale, which is from the Screen Actors Guild, the union that represents all motion picture and television actors, uh, as well as the actors who work in commercials and other forms of multimedia. And so they have a set rate that scales based on uh, the the budget of the production, whether it is a small scale uh, or a mid-scale or fluctuating scale or a full major production uh, feature. And it also breaks down between that for film and for TV. And so, for example, uh, the 2012-2013 basic minimum daily rate for an actor in a film is $842. The, again, your mileage may vary based on that. And then the weekly rate is uh, $2,921. And so, but that scale is altered based on whether you're working 10 to 19 weeks um, a, a year, if you're getting the 20-week guarantee and what have you. And then from there, you can, of course, be guaranteed. You can always negotiate for more. Um, you could say that you're going to be double scale. You could have scale plus 20, um, as in 20%. So, so there are different methods with which you can get, but the scale is considered minimum wage. Now, Let's just assume that you're shooting the moon and getting full the, the full scale of the whole 2921 as of the 2013 time period. That's three thousand dollars a week. Um, three thousand dollars a week. That's that's not bad. That's you know before taxes. That's about 150 grand a year. Um, but we all know that. Even if you're in some miracle of that, well, you still have agents to pay for, management to pay for, taxes to pay for, living expenses to pay for. And in California, where things are really, really expensive, uh, you know, that's like 40 grand a year for, you know, 40, 50 grand a year for the rest of us. So you're not even blowing up the world then. And there's only so many people who even are blessed with that. Most actors and actresses, um, even some people that you might Oh yeah, I kind of remember that guy. Oh, you know, or, or or that actress or whatever. Um, they they go months without work, and so um, for example, I, I keep going back to uh, Marin Gigliotti, and she she's a hairdresser, so even she has to have you know the quote unquote real job when she's not doing other appearances and uh, media related stuff in movies or TV for herself. So. Um, is just so you can see the problem here. And so when going back to Peter Coyote, he is then asking for, um, he's then asking for these people, these mega stars, you know, your RDJs, your George Clooney's, um, your Brad Pitt's, what have you. Um, and he's, he's wants those people 
to then say, hey, would you please be willing to either A, take a pay cut for us of a million or two bucks that can then go to the rest of the cast? Um, or could you at least B, if you can't do that, could you at least go to bat for us and tell these people to start paying us more or, you know, or I guess or else or what have you. Um, and that's pretty much where we're at. Let me go ahead and read you the third to the last paragraph um, where he's, and again, this is, again, he's talking, Peter Coyote's talking to the multi, you know, millionaire, hundred millionaire club, whatever. And he says, quote, also let's relate to the non-celluloid world for a moment. Once an actor reaches the six or ten million dollar mark for several months' work, they are financially secure for life unless they are morons or have extremely bad habits. By the time they're earning fifteen to twenty million, some measurable percentage of those earnings is meaningless. A major star in a film we were doing together once told me we were discussing the issue. Quote, Hey, there's no difference between seventeen and eighteen million to me. My agent tells me so and so gets it and so should I, end quote. Um, and, and quotes for the article there. So that's his position. He thinks, you know, the little guys are getting shit on, um, and the big guys should step up and help out either by taking the pay cut or by vocalizing the problem. Tim, I didn't mean to like, you know, ramrod this whole thing, but it seemed like kind of a complex thing to jump back and forth. So... <laughs> You said ramrod. Uh, you said ramrod. <laughs> um, what's up? What do you got? What are you thinking? Peter Coyote. It's funny because whenever you brought this up, there's a YouTube star called Coyote Peterson who does really, he's like this, he seems like a really rich kid who took daddy's money and traveled the world with cameras and gets stung, purposely stung and bitten by scorpions and spiders and shit like that. So at first I thought, why the fuck is this doof? writing an open letter about actors getting paid. So I ended up going on IMDb and looked up Peter Coyote and realized he's been in some stuff um, that I've noticed him in, uh, like in E.T., the extraterrestrial. He played Keys. He has a voice that's semi-recognizable because he is a narrator. In fact, he narrated the Enron documentary, The Smartest Guys in the Room. So, I mean, he he has... I guess you could say steady work, or it has had steady work, but they've always been kind of the sideshow type of characters, like what the article is, who the article is talking about. Uh, he's been in TV shows, a lot of TV shows that just never really got picked up. Uh, quite a few, actually, where it looked like he had a consistent role. But I guess what I'm trying to say is yeah, it takes a lot of balls to really write an open letter like this, especially when you're an actor of his age and still kind of struggling. Uh, I mean, he was born in 1941, so that makes him, you know, 76 or so. It's a shame that he's waiting until now to really publicly say something about all this. Uh, granted, I don't know if he's been actively trying to help out his fellow actors uh, for, you know, over the past however many years or not. But, you know, again, it just takes a lot of balls, I guess, regardless of who you are, to really come out and say something like this. Although, I mean, Matt, I mean, do you think this was really the best course of action uh, not only just him, but a lot of people that are part of that Actors Guild who have exhausted all their options. I mean, there's only so much picketing and, and letter writing that you can do to where you just kind of have to give up and take whatever course of action that you can, just under rioting and looting and 
attacking well, sure. people. And, and okay, and to be clear, I mean, now I I don't know necessarily how reliable this information is, um, but I did go to celebritynetworth.com and looked up Peter Coyote, and according to Peter, uh, according to celebritynetworth.com, uh, it says that Peter Coyote has a net worth of ten million dollars now. Um, and yes, he, he is 75, but, um, so you can kind of take that one, one of two ways. Well, I guess it's nice that someone who is in the winter of his life and is set for the rest of it, theoretically, <laughs> is stepping out to, you know, uh, call people out there. The cynic in you might say, well, um, you know, I guess you're just doing it to toot your own horn, and now that makes you more marketable. Oh, well, we got to like this guy because he's looking out for us, so let's hire him more. Oh, now look who gets more money. Um, but on the flip side, regardless of ulterior motive or not, um, he's not wrong. Oh, yeah, I don't think so either. Um, it, that's and, what, and, it, and I – go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say that. And that's what kind of pissed me off with the Passengers movie where – I mean, that's why the budget of that, of that movie just ballooned because they offered Chris Pratt an absorbent amount of money. And once – what's her name? Jennifer Lawrence caught in one of how much money that Chris Pratt was going to make. She demanded to make the same amount of money. And based on principle – yeah, of course. I mean, the leading lady should make the same amount of money as the leading man, especially she already had an Academy Award under her belt. True. But I think, okay, in this particular instance, and, and I don't, and, and I want to keep it, I want to narrow the scope to just this particular instance. Um, because this is, I, I don't want to make this about any kind of pattern or any kind of, uh, you know, equal rights issue or anything like that. Um. I think that the failing in this particular scenario was honestly on the agents or managers of the respective actors and actresses. Um, it is their job to go out and get the best money possible for their client. And the simple fact that, and, and it is on the studio to get these people for as cheaply as they possibly can. Right? Art of making money, labor is your biggest controllable. Yeah. So just because the agent didn't do their due diligence or didn't know the right people or didn't get, you know, uh, to find out what Pratt was making doesn't mean that they were specifically trying to lowball Lawrence. If I go to you and say, hey, dude, I'll give you a hundred bucks to do this and then realize they need somebody else and go, hey, dude, I'll give you 80 bucks to do this. You know, just because you didn't say, well, I don't want to do it for 80. I want to do it for 100. That's not on me. And it's certainly not on the other guy that I paid 100 bucks. Sure. But I guess really the question is, is that because there were, it was, incre I mean, I don't remember exactly how much they each got paid. It must have been over 15 million bucks per person. Is it like a case of, of one's morals to where once an actor reaches a certain amount of money, they should feel obligated to help their fellow man since they are pretty much set from then on out and you know like every movie like depending on what kind of movie or how much money that they're going to be making maybe it's up to them to be like okay you know I, I should help out my fellow actor and not take as much money for my time 
Or is it that important for that actor or actress to build their brand, to become that kind of actor to where that a, a movie or a studio should be able to afford them because they feel like they can bring in that much of a box office draw? And so if they do work on a movie where they have to step in and help their fellow actors, that would look bad upon them and ruin their brand. I don't know. There's just like a lot of, I guess, factors to it that you just really never know how certain actors will respond to something like this. And and just to um, make sure we're uh, to clear to to clear something up here, I um, looked up here. I've got a Forbes article from December 29th of last year by way of Scott Mendelson, uh, and it looks like there was no. Um, there, there was nothing going on behind the scenes. Just Jennifer Lawrence got twenty million, and Chris Pratt got twelve for Passengers. Yeah, no, there was something else going on. But if I mean, yeah, I'd be surprised if I don't know. But I do know that yeah, something else was going on behind. Either way, though, that's yeah. that's that's re- that's ridiculous. And even the Forbes article says. Uh, <laughs> It, in this day, quote, in this day and age, no one is really worth 20 million and few are worth 12 million unless he or she are reprising a popular franchise character, end quote. Um, yeah, I mean, so, it, it's all yeah. stupid. You go into the arts for the arts and w- like when you're dealing with like, I understand that a lot of these actors and filmmakers, I know that Robert Downey Jr. and Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon and all these guys, they give back to charities I know Leonardo DiCaprio does like a lot of uh, climate preservation or is it climate preservation? I don't know. He does like a lot of like climate stuff and trying to help, you know, the world become a better place. And I don't know how much money that that takes out of him, but, you know, I mean, he makes enough money. And so I, I, I just don't know. I mean, I guess another factor in all this that maybe certain actors get to a point to where they feel like they work hard to make that money. They have a reputation. They have a brand again to keep going. And they're known for being great performers. A number of these people are known for being great performers. I mean, believe it or not, they're they're acting and working. And some of these other people, I mean, I can see where they're coming from, like what Peter Coyote was talking about. But I don't know. I guess it's well, a double. I, I just think there's something. Story. Well, it is. It is, and don't and and again, I I mean, I, I'm a big fan of you know, hey, make as much money as you can, uh, but try to be a good person while you're doing it. I I know Keanu Reeves, for example. A very famous example. He he took like all the he or he either turned down or somehow took some, some ungodly amount of money from the Matrix trilogy, like nearly a hundred million dollars, and literally back ended it to the production crew, so that everybody got like thirty or forty thousand dollars. <laughs> so, um, you know, when it comes to people who are working crew, you know. Everybody thinks Keanu Reeves is a god, basically, you know. Um, but but for me, I see someone like Stephen Tobolowski, right? One of my all-time favorite character actors, you know. And this is a guy who's got a net worth, uh, again, celebritynetworth.com. Look it up for yourself. Um, $1.5 So, and this is a guy who is, you know, and, and this is after 30 years of work. So, he's no nece- not necessarily any better off than... You, you know, you or I. So I think that's, and, and to a certain extent, I think that's a good thing because it shows that hard work, dedication, and talent, um, can give you not just longevity in this industry, but can provide you your livelihood. 
And I don't think that that's such a bad thing. But um, I, I don't think this problem's ever going to go away. Uh, Hollywood has always overpaid its highest people. Even going back to the golden age of Hollywood and stuff, when in the 30s and 40s you had actors and actresses making, you know, three and four thousand dollars a week. I mean, that's ungodly money. That's like a hundred thousand dollars easy in today's money. I mean, it's just stupid, stupid money. Um, and, and, and that was at a time when, you know, a dollar could get you a lot farther than a dollar, uh, could today. So, I, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, I just, wow. Yeah. So let's just see here. $3,000, and let's go back, oh, we'll go all the way back to 1930. Let's just, 1930, when someone made $3,000 a week, $42,000 a week. Could you imagine making $42,000 a week? So <laughs> I could imagine it, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, again, this is not a problem that's new to Hollywood. Um but I guess it's nice that we can talk about it. Indeed. Thank you again, Marilyn Gigliotti at that clerk's girl for turning me on to this article. I think it's a, I think it's a worthwhile discussion. Oh, and, I think so too. Yeah, it's um, fantastic. Well, I mean, not, yeah. the situation sucks, but you know what I mean. It does. It does. And and you know maybe there's a maybe there's a question to be asked about SAG. Um, you know, is the pay good? Uh, I, I do know that. Um, the contracts and stuff require X amount of SAG employees, and and when they've met that quota, they then go and start looking for non-union employees so that they can pay less. Um, and there are some people out there who argue that depending on where you're at, your SAG card actually decreases your pay because the union spots fill up so quickly. And then once you... Um, our union, you can't work a non-union job. So maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe there's a way to help with, I don't know. But yeah, definitely compelling discussion, and I am glad that we had that. So one last time, thanks again, Marilyn Gigliotti, at That Clerk's Girl. Thank you again to Matt and Tim for their wonderful discussion of Peter Coyote's open letter to lead actors from Deadline.com on this episode of Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next week, we will return to our regularly scheduled bonus segment of Ultimate Letdown. Once again, you have been listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. Well then, here we go, folks. It's time for the movies. And this week's movies are Free Fire and The Lost City of Z or Z. Is, as was pointed out earlier. <laughs> if you're English, I guess. If you're English, yes. Yes, it is Z or Z. Where, where, where would you like to start, sir? 
How about Free Fire? Free Fire. Because it's free. Free Fire. I don't know what's wrong with me. Just, it's okay. Uh, so, Free Fire, 2016, British action comedy film directed by Ben Wheatley, and stars uh, Sharto Copley, Army Hammer, Brie Larson, Cillian Murphy, uh, and Jack Rayner. Basically, what we have here is a group of people who are meeting for nefarious weapons exchange. They're there to buy weapons. And uh, due to some uh, shenanigans before the exchange and the drop, um, shit goes wrong and we end up in a huge standoff over a briefcase full of money. Um, and then... Regardless of the shenanigans beforehand, shenanigans, of course, ensue, and now we have a who's going to get out of here alive kind of situation thing, okay? Um, alright, so, I don't know, I really felt like this movie, um, had a lot of potential, and I think that, um, in terms of the setup, it really was well done. I thought it was a lot of fun, slightly cliched in certain areas, but still really making it um, something that you're looking forward to seeing how it turns out. And then, uh, and then we actually get to the major scenario. And while there is some uh, outrageousness and there is some kind of uh, cleverness, this is one of those things. And I think it was, uh, I, I think Ebert said uh, said this it was basically it's basically like a stupid person plot hole or or uh, a stupid person movie or something like that basically the plot of the movie wouldn't exist if the 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 characters weren't stupid so and and there's there's telling things about this for like example uh in part of the way through the movie you know after everybody's trying to figure out what the hell's going on and certain people are already dead and people are trying to get there's a phone rings in an office and they're like oh there's a phone right and it's like nobody thought of this ahead of time so it's things like that that kind of drag the movie down and it's and the dialogue is witty but it really just kind of seemed to me like um they were leading they were leading up to one particular character the whole time it's leading up to one particular character um to to you know be the winner if you will and um and and then like most good capers you know they 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 have to have fun with the ending and stuff like that um and, and i'm not saying that because it's a twist ending it twists anything it just it just really felt um you just, I don't know. I just felt like it was leading up to what, what you saw. So predictable. I guess it's predictable. But it's still fun. Uh, still pretty funny. Three stars. What do you got there, Tim? I'm giving it three stars as well. I liked it and thoroughly enjoyed it up until about probably the halfway mark where I felt like it was just starting to become repetitive. Um, there are multiple instances at the beginning of the movie where I thought, man, that script needs to be polished up a little bit. What they're saying really isn't particularly funny. The characters, though they are all performed well, and uh, we, there are some very talented actors in this movie, like Army Hammer and Charlotte Copley, Brie Larson, Cillian Murphy, who is actually the best character out of the entire movie because he actually felt like a down-to-earth character. Nothing really clicked with me. You know, it felt like they were trying to have this repertoire with one another, but it just felt forced. And very much like kind of like Quentin Tarantino dialogue without that Quentin Tarantino 
execution. So, like, from beginning to end, a lot of the jokes aren't really funny. I thought there were quite a few missed opportunities that they were going to eventually get to, since you're only dealing with a handful of people in one location, pretty much a short period of time, pretty much doing the same exact thing. They're in a gun battle. They're, you know, they, I thought it was very funny that they all get shot either in the leg or somewhere that immobilizes them. So they all have to scoot around on their backs and on their leg. You know, I thought that was pretty funny. But you never really get the idea that a lot of thought went into how to exactly shoot this to make it more interesting for the viewer to watch and not have it feel repetitive and therefore boring. And that's really all I got to say about the movie. I like the idea the setting. I like what the characters were reaching for, their characterizations and their dialogue. I just felt they really didn't quite grab it. You know, they were trying to reach for the top shelf, but they just kind of settled with middle to bottom shelf stuff. But it's well made. I think the director definitely knows how to shoot around guns and and gunfights. But I just need that characterization to really make me care about these people. Because, like, Cillian Murphy's character, you know, he's a guy that's just trying to get a job done. He expects things to go the right way. There's obviously a kind of relationship between him and Brie Larson. But then a couple, like, twists and turns happen and nothing really ever comes out of it. It just kind of falls flat. And the movie ends very much how it began, where it just felt gimmicky and forced. But 3 out of 5, for a while I was wanting to give it a 3.5 until it became more the same. Then it went down to 3. Do check it out. I think some of you guys will get a kick out of it. If not at the theater, then rent it and make sure you have good sound. Because the sound mixing is really good. Alright, well then that leaves us with The Lost City of Z or Lost City of Z. Uh, 2016 American biographical adventure drama film written and directed by James Gray based on the book of the same name by David Gran. Uh, describes... Uh, um, uh, Alright, based on a true story. But just based on a true story. Um, Charlie Hunnam is uh, Percy Fawcett, who is the guy who actually uh, is the explorer. Um, and then, of course, Robert. Uh, we've got Robert Pattinson, who is a um, uh, kind of like his man-at-arms, basically, um, who, who also works really, who also in real life worked with his son, um, Jack, played by Tom Holland. Sienna Miller is his wife. Um, okay, so basically what we have here is a gentleman, uh, Colonel Percy Fawcett, who had spent, prior to World War One had actually spent time in, um, what was it? Is, is it Brazil? It is, right? He's in Brazil. I looked this up and I should remember. It's Brazil, right, Tim? Uh, yes, it's Brazil. Okay. I, I believe he mentioned something about the Mayans or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I went back. All right, because um, after basically in 2005, just just to give you an idea of uh, in 2005, they actually believe they finally found what it was he was looking for. So for whatever it's worth, um, you know, while his disappearance is is a mystery. Um, what he was looking for, uh, they believe they found it. So that's kind of cool. Uh, in a place called Kuhigugu. Um, so there you go. Um, 
At any rate, so we're following the guy, following Colonel Percy Fawcett, who had, who prior to World War One had been exploring Brazil, um, and had some findings. It's like, oh, there's this lost city. I know there is. I can find it. Um, he also made uh, claims about having shot and killed like a 60-foot python and stuff like that. Um, and of course, he was laughed out. Eventually, though, he had to go through World War One. He goes and fights World War One. Despite actually, by the time World War One was over, Homeboy was like fifty. So, I mean, he was he was a tough he was a tough son of a bitch. There's no question. Ends up going and by 1925, there's an expedition. Whatever. All right. So, here's the thing about this movie. Um, from a cinematograph from a cinematic point of view, it's awesome. I mean, um. As as easy as it as you as as easy as it is as it is to say blah 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 as easy as it is to say that oh come on it's easy you're shooting mountains and stuff oh that stuff is beautiful it's not just about being able to shoot the jungle it's about knowing what parts of the jungle to shoot it's about understanding lighting it's about understanding where the shot is taking place and what you're trying to take what you're trying to say in that shot where you're literally letting the scenery become more than a backdrop it becomes like a character um and this movie does that does that job very very well where the movie kind of falls off for me is that it is just simply too long. Um, and it, and so it, consequently, it drags in places that it shouldn't. I, I just think that, um, and, and also in trying to make this journey indelible, they put characters in play that don't actually have a basis to be there except for dramatic action. And I'm going to, um, just as a minor real life spoiler, I guess, um, his wife was never there. Okay. Um, so you, so everything that you're experiencing through Nina's point of view and how it's relating to the, to the stuff that was going on, um, it, it, you know, she was always, she was never, there she was always off you know like far far away i mean you know like home um and while i mean i'm not saying you know that it's complete fabrication but i just it's things like that that you can tell that are just there for dramatic purposes and stuff that's actually there just kind of it almost seems like filler instead of plot advancement and I, it just caused the movie to drag. I I think uh, at 140 minutes, this was easily 20 minutes too long, maybe even closer to 25. It's still gorgeous. It's still, I would at least give an argue well thought out. So this is still a 3.75 out of 5. It's just too long. And I would argue it's not for everybody. What do you got there, Tim? You say 3.75? 3.75. Oh, okay. Well, you're not you're not far off from me at all. Um, I thought this was going to be kind of a bloodbath, but it's not. <laughs> actually, that's kind of what I thought about this movie. I thought it was going to be more of a bloodbath, but it, you know, it actually, it wasn't. They encountered some really nice indigenous folk, which I was I was kind of surprised. It's a beautifully shot 
and performed film. Very much like what Matt was saying, they do a really good job at establishing characters, establishing setting, establishing a time period, establishing a mood, and establishing atmosphere, which is very important. You get a taste of it in the movie's trailer. And the ending, like, I had no idea what the movie was building up to, and I really didn't fully agree with how the ending was done, but it it, it affected me in, in some way. Like, I was swept up with it. It's very interesting. In fact, some years ago, I read a bunch of books by Carlos Castaneda about the shaman Don Juan, and shit, where was he at? Was he in, was that Mexico? New Mexico was in the States? Maybe it was in Mexico? I I can't remember. Um, But it was all about drugs and spirituality and finding your inner spirit. And it just reminded me kind of sort of what Charlie Hunnam's character was kind of going through in this in this movie, you know, in the jungle, that's where he is at peace. That is where he is uh, can let his spirit go free. That's where he can find his heaven, the life that he is choosing to live. And his spirit will guide him to that heaven, which is the lost city of Zed. At least that's kind of what I got from it, like a more of a spiritual take from it. I'm not a very spiritual guy, but I really like spiritually tight movies like this. It's very interesting. There's a lot of different levels to it, but if you just go into this movie expecting your run-of-the-mill adventure flick, you're not going to pick up on it, or you're not going to really pick up on it until the very end or, or later on. You know, A lot of people don't realize what this movie is trying to achieve. But it's beautifully shot, wonderfully performed. I was very much impressed by Robert Pattinson's work in this movie. In fact, I forgot he was in it, and... I, it took me a while to recognize him. The makeup in his characterization is so good. Uh, it pretty much blew me away and was one of the best parts of this entire movie. But my main two issues with this film, my main two concerns, I wanted to love this movie. I've been looking forward to it for so long. I was worried about it being near two and a half hours going to see this movie so late at night, but it went by so fast because I was there. It had me by the balls. But the two issues that I have, it just pains me. It pains me to mention them. And I'm hoping that maybe going back for repeated viewings will maybe kind of clear my issues up a little bit, and maybe I'll enjoy it some more. But my two issues pertains to his obsession with the Lost City of Zed, or finding the Lost City of Zed, and the contrast between the jungle and his home life. So his obsession is the jungle, or is it the lost city of Zed? At first you think it's the jungle, and then by the end of the movie, when he goes out for his last expedition with the sun, you find out all of a sudden he's he's infatuated with this city. Where as the movie progresses, you never get the idea that he is so infatuated with finding this lost city that he is willing to abandon his family and even risk his son's life. You just really don't get that idea other than when he tells you what his obsession is. And it just kind of, at least for me, it kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. Like, I just really wanted it. I really wanted to see it in his eyes. Yeah, he's a loving father. Yeah, he's a loving husband. But there is something apparently that he is more in love with finding that obsession. You know, it's kind of like the heart of darkness, where you read the heart of darkness or you watch Apocalypse Now. You see what Marlon Brando's obsession is the jungle, power. You know, he cracked. 
I'm not saying that Charlie Hunnam's character, he, you know, he didn't necessarily have to crack, but there has to be that moment or those moments that build up to this obsession. And I really wanted to see that and experience that. And the contrast between the jungle and the home life, the feel of the jungle is the same as when he's at home. Maybe the reason why is because he visits home too much, or the audience visits his home too much. You know, therefore, we're not fully enveloped in the jungle. Like, you spend a period of time in the jungle, and then he goes back home. Or there's a flashback. Or it cuts to back home. So you're, you're never, like, really caught up or swept up. You know, like the movie Castaway. You spend a good, you know, chunk of the beginning where Tom Hanks is doing his job. You know, he's with his wife. You get an idea of his family life. And then he gets stuck on this island. And for the majority of the movie, he's on this island alone, secluded. And so you're there. And at the very end of the movie, when he gets found, (laughs) you're absolutely relieved. Because you weren't expecting it. At that point, anything could have happened. He could have died. And so it made it that much more surprising when he got picked up. Because you were there with them. You knew that anything goes at that point. I I kind of felt that with The Lost City of Zed. But I kind of saw what was going to happen. What needed to happen. But I just wished I could at least experience it when I knew it was going to happen. And not as early on as I did. So again, those are my two issues. One, the obsession with the city, the lost city, and then the contrast between the jungle and the home life. I give this movie a solid four stars. I am going to take the significant other to go see this again with me. It's it's a must-see. I think maybe this movie even could have benefited from a longer runtime. If it was three hours, maybe I would have been more enveloped in the jungle life to where when he did go back home, it would be more of a contrast. And I would get a better idea or better sense of his obsession with finding this lost city. But again, four out of five lost city for Z. Or for Z. For me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be The Boss Baby, which I am surprised that we're doing. It's for your kids. I know. I just, I thought we, I, I, okay. Since we're here, <laughs> I'll just fill you in. I, you know, my kids have been literally bothering me, and I do mean bothering because I don't want to see it. And I know Tim doesn't want to see it, but they've been bothering me for like a month. You know, we're going to see Boss Baby. I want to see Boss Baby. Um, and so finally, I was just like, I, I hit up Tim, hey, do you think we can watch Boss Baby? Blah, 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 whatever. And he's like, I, I, I don't, what? No, I'm sorry. Well, it was a one-two punch with that and Smurfs. (laughs) Okay, yes, it was. I did ask for, but again, it was the nostalgia button for me. We talked about it last week, so you know why I wanted to see Smurfs. Um, But the kids did really want, and so, eh, you know, if I can do something nice, take them to movies, and we can do a movie together, then okay. Um, And so we we pretty much came to the agreement that we were just going to do Smurfs. And you know what? That's okay. That's fine. You know, I can't, can't do them all. And so I open up the email tonight. We're looking for this. And I was like, oh, the boss baby's on there. I, you know, so I will let them know that Uncle Tim wanted, you know, fell on his sword so that they could watch this movie. <laughs> They'll be very excited. And if they don't like it, 
<laughs> they never get to watch a movie again, ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we got the boss baby for next week, as well as the love witch. And I think that now brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you'll be listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter by following at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire, don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as catch us on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Charlie Hunnam, I get to say this. Everybody at some point in their life has fallen down and not felt like getting back up. But you have to, no matter how difficult it is. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.